0: I would invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's words to Psalm chapter 91. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, it's page 497. Let's go to the Lord in prayer to ask His blessing upon our time in His Word this morning. Our Father, what a great privilege and delight it is to gather Week after week, as your pilgrim people, as we sojourn on towards that heavenly home that is awaiting us in Christ Jesus, would you use the eternal truth of your word and feed us and nourish us from it? We acknowledge our need for the work of the faithful, tender, and loving Holy Spirit within our hearts and minds this day. We are prone to wander and think about so many other things. Instead, may we. And by your kindness and mercy to us, give attention to this, your word of truth, this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked." Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague shall come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in his love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. And reading this past week about how this psalm has been used at different times throughout church history, I came across several instances in which this psalm has brought great comfort and hope ...to those in the midst of significant hardship and trial. It's a psalm of comfort and confidence... ...used by those who have been ministering to the sick and dying... ...in times of plague and disease. It's a psalm that was frequently turned to in times of war. In World War I, this was known as the Trench Psalm. A psalm that brought comfort to those... ...facing insurmountable odds and harsh conditions... One of my professors from seminary tells of his father-in-law who spent some 18 months in a prisoner of war camp during World War II, meditating upon this psalm countless times as he had it committed to memory, a psalm that brought him great comfort in those circumstances. The encouragement of Psalm 91 is to trust in the Lord, to learn to rest in the shelter and the shadow of the Almighty. Now, for those of us as Calvinists, as though, you know, we love to dwell upon a rich theology, don't we? We love theological precision. We love rich truth surrounding the nature of God. And because of that, at times we might be labeled as stoic or cerebral in our response to hardship and suffering. But that's really a false dichotomy. It's a false separation to put theologically rich truth and practical application in separate categories. These are two things that throughout the Psalms are wonderfully fused together. If you've been attending Pastor McWilliam's class Sunday mornings on the doctrine of God, no doubt you've seen the daily practical comforts that come from dwelling upon the nature of who our God is. Comforts which warm the heart. Comforts which stir the affections and arouse the will towards obedience. Because very simply, the more we know Him, the more we understand Him, the more we learn to delight and trust and rest in Him. And that's really what the Psalms do, isn't it? They don't ignore trial and difficulties as they come in life, but we learn as we look to the promises of God, we learn to transcend all that is temporary, as we fix our gaze upon that which is eternal, as we fix our gaze upon the one who is eternal. And what we find in this psalm is that no matter what circumstances we face, no matter what trial we are called to endure, no matter what hardship might come, no matter how long that hardship might last in this earthly life, the one who lives in the shadow of the Lord is safe. And to live in the shadow of something, of course, is to be near that reality. And so if we are to live in the shadow of the Almighty, that means that we are never far from Him. And He is never far from His people. The promise of this psalm is that for those who are in covenant union with the Lord, we are in the shelter. We are in the shadow of the Almighty. And what this psalm presses us to consider in our own lives is, am I living this way? Am I living as though I am in the shadow of the Lord? Am I trusting Him? Am I believing Him? Am I resting in Him? Am I finding the satisfaction that my soul longs for in Him? As we turn to this psalm, what I would like to do first for a few moments is spend some time on the context of this psalm to consider the placement of this psalm within the Psalter. And so if you'd like, our first point is simply the context of this psalm. If we understand the context, if we understand the placement of this psalm within the book as a whole, then we'll have a greater understanding of how we are to draw comfort from it and apply it to our own lives. When you think of how the Psalms are structured, how they are put together within the Psalter, they are not put together in a random fashion. Nor are they put together, as we saw from Psalm 3 last week, chronologically. But they are put together thematically. Now, the Psalter is broken up into five books meant to remind us of the five books of Moses. Now, each book not only has a theme... But each book fits within a period of history for the people of Israel. Each book follows the flow of God's redemptive plan for his children in Israel. And so you'll notice that Psalm 90 marks the beginning of book 4. And before book 4 comes, of course, book (laughs) 3. Now book 3, which begins in Psalm 73 and goes through Psalm 89, is a book that's primarily related to crisis... Book 3 contains a series of Psalms that reflect the devastation of God's people as they are driven from their land of promise into exile. And so Book 3 captures this dilemma. If we are God's called out special covenant people, then why are such hardships present in my life? Psalm 73, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? Psalm 74, your enemies have brought sanctuary, or brought ruin into your sanctuary, O Lord. They have destroyed it with axes and hammers. They have set it ablaze, and your sanctuary is destroyed. And that book, book 3, comes to a close here in chapter 89, if you look at verse 49. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which you, by your faithfulness, swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked. And how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord. With which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. And so the settings of these psalms from book 3 is filled with hardship of circumstance brought against God's people. Now we might wonder why. Why is there such difficulty? Why such devastation upon the children of Israel? Why are God's people going through these hardships? Why are they driven from the land and taken into exile? Why is God against them? Why this anger and wrath poured out upon them? Well, because God was abundantly clear in Deuteronomy chapters 28 through 32. It was there in those chapters that he promised life and blessing and prosperity and peace upon the children of Israel if they were to keep the terms of the covenants. At the same time, the Lord promised curses upon them if their response was one of covenant unfaithfulness. Here are just some of the warnings given to the people of God through Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. Failure to obey the voice of the Lord, failure to keep the terms of the covenant will lead to such curses as disease, drought, pestilence, defeat at the hands of their enemies, and even more horrific things. And because they in fact did turn from the Lord and unite themselves to false gods, the Lord brought this promised judgment upon them. And it's this heartache in the midst of such devastation that is captured in those psalms throughout book 3. And so as book 3 comes to an end here in Psalm 89, there are significant questions that are raised that are brought before the Lord. How long, O Lord? How long will this suffering go on When will you intervene in noticeable and tangible ways? Will you hide your face forever? We know that we are deserving of your wrath and judgment, but we also know that you are a God of grace. And so what are we to do with the promises that you have made to your people? Is there any hope for us? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Where is that steadfast love of old which by your faithfulness you swore to your anointed servants, David. You have promised that you will have a chosen servant upon the throne. How are we to reconcile these promises in which you state that you will be faithful, and yet these circumstances that we find ourselves in, filled with such hardship and suffering? And those very significant theological questions that are raised throughout book three of the Psalter, they begin to find their answers here as we turn to book four. A book in which we read of God's people growing into maturity, learning to look beyond their circumstances, learning to transcend the temporal struggles and difficulties of life, to find sufficiency in the Lord himself. It is the Lord who is the dwelling place in all generations. It's not relegated to some spatial location, but our dwelling is in the Lord God Himself. To have Him with me wherever I go, that is real comfort. That is all that I need. This is what the people of God are beginning to understand. And so Psalms 90 and 91 together function as introductory psalms to Book 4. These psalms are meant to drive the child of God as he reads these words. They're meant to drive him back hundreds of years to promises that the Lord gave through Moses to the people of Israel. Back in the book of Deuteronomy. And we too, you see, are meant to be driven back to those covenant promises that God has made. For he is faithful to continue to keep those promises made to his children and so Psalm 90 and 91 both draw heavily upon the covenantal promises from the book of Deuteronomy. So that's the important context and setting of Psalm 91. As we move on, our second point is this. We are safe in the shadow of the Lord because of the intimate enjoyment that we have in the presence of God. We see that in verses 1 and 2. Safe in His shadow Because of his intimate presence. Now in these two verses we have four titles that are ascribed to the Lord. And each of these titles points us back to the patriarchs. Who received these words, these names of God from the Lord himself. He is most high. It was back in Genesis chapter 14 when Abram rescues Lot. That he receives this blessing from that mysterious, priestly, kingly figure, Melchizedek. He says to Abram, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hands. As the God who is Most High, He is the transcendent one who rules, who reigns over all, who puts every threat in its proper place. He is the all-sufficient one. The one who is need, in need of no one or nothing outside of himself. As most high, he is the one who owns heaven and earth. Both of those realms belong to him. And because of that, our enemies are nothing compared to his greatness. He is almighty. When God appeared to Abraham and entered into a covenant with him in Genesis chapter 17, he reveals himself to Abraham as God almighty The one who has infinite power at his disposal to do all that he promises to do, that he has power to fulfill the terms of the covenants. At that time, in Genesis 17, Abraham still has no home, he has no child of promise, but he is called to trust in the Almighty One. Israel may be in exile, they may still be experiencing hardship, the outcome to their circumstances is still uncertain. But they are maturing and learning to trust in the Lord regardless of those circumstances. In verse 2, he is the Lord. This, of course, is the covenant name that God gave to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 from the burning bush. He is the great I am, the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable one. The one who not only establishes the covenant, but keeps the covenant that he initiates. He is the faithful one who remains true to his people. And as the Lord, our response can be one of crying out to him as our refuge and our fortress. And then fourth, he is called my God, the one in whom I trust. Not just God, not just the one who rules over all and has authority over all, but my God. He's personal. He is knowable. He's the one who has drawn me to himself in intimate closeness. Now if these are all titles, if these are all names that God has given of himself to the patriarchs of old, and if these are names that are still true, you see we are being taught here about the unchanging nature of God. Not only can the psalmist as he writes these words draw upon such comfort that the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Not only can the people in exile draw comfort from these words as they read them, but we too in our own lives can draw great comfort from the immutable, unchangeable nature of God. Herman Bobby, in speaking of the immutable nature of God, says that while everything changes, God is and remains the same. He remains who he is. He is Yahweh, the Lord. He who is and ever remains himself. He is the first, and with the last, he is still the same God. He is who he is, the incorruptible, who alone has immortality and is always the same, unchangeable in his existence and being. He is so also in his thoughts and will, in all his plans and decisions. He is not a human that he should lie or repent. What he says he will do. His gifts and calling are irrevocable. He does not reject his people. He completes what he has begun. In a word, he, Yahweh, the Lord, does not change. In him, there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so as we learn to claim such names of the Lord as my own comfort, that reflects this intimacy, you see, that I share with the immutable God who rules and reigns over all you know, the psalms are never meant to be read in a cursory manner. Their very poetic nature is meant to slow you down and cause you to thoughtfully meditate upon the rich content that we find in Hebrew poetry. Thomas Manton, an English Puritan from the 17th century, makes this helpful distinction between study and meditation. Both study and meditation, Manson says, are valuable and both are necessary for Christian living. He says the one who studies is like a a wine dealer who takes fine wine and stores it up in his cellar, keeping those valuable and rich treasures as they become more valuable. While the one who meditates is like one who takes one of those valuable bottles from the cellar and uncorks it. And enjoys it with another for a very special occasion. Through meditation, through giving contemplative thought to these things, I'm learning to bridge the theological truths of God's nature with my own heart. Taking these rich concepts of the nature of God and making them individual realities. And we see that very personal, intimate application in the text itself. Verse 3. He will deliver you. Verse 4, He will cover you. You will find refuge. Verse 5, you will not fear. Verse 8, you will see with your own eyes the judgments of the Lord and the deliverance of His people. Now the you that's referenced in this psalm is simply anyone who is in covenant relationship with the Lord God. If you are in Christ Jesus, then you belong And you have the right to confidently and boldly draw upon such promises as your own. Do you trust? Do you believe? Someone has said this is the very essence of what the Christian life is all about. Trusting that God is who he says he is. A vow of trust because of who he is. Do you see the great intimacy that is ours with the living God? There's nothing cold or mechanical about this whatsoever. It's a relationship of trust, of love, of dependence, of satisfaction, of great delight. So let's go on and consider some of the promises that this psalm makes. Thirdly, we are safe in the shadow of the Lord because of the amazing promises that we find in this psalm. This is a psalm, as you notice, that is filled not only with remarkable confidence and trust in the Lord, but it's a psalm that is filled with astonishing promises. Verse 3, He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. Verse 7, A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Verse 10, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. And so there are promises that these very real and formidable threats from the outside will not be able to touch you. The world is filled with dangers, but the promise is that we will be protected. Now back in Deuteronomy, again, the Lord made promises to His people that they would suffer greatly if they broke the terms of that covenant relationship. And of course they did and that's reflected in poetic form again in book 3 of the Psalter. Now as the people of Israel are in exile and as they are reflecting back upon those covenant curses, they are convicted that they are utterly deserving of this judgment and wrath. They recognize that the exile is a consequence of their own faithlessness. At the same time in the darkness of exile there is a ray of hope hope of restoration in their relationship with the Lord because He is the Lord of love and mercy and kindness. And that hope is captured in these strong words of promise from this psalm. Deuteronomy promised pestilence because of covenant unfaithfulness. Psalm 91 claims protection from such things, protection from pestilence. Deuteronomy promises abandonment. Psalm 91, that the Lord will cover you with faithfulness. Deuteronomy promised confusion and fear during the day and night. Psalm 91, day or night the Lord will protect you. Deuteronomy promised that all their towns and villages would be besieged and overrun by their enemies. Psalm 91, that thousands will fall before you and will not prevail. Deuteronomy, even the beasts of the field, even the created order will be against you. But Psalm 91, you will have dominion over those untamed beasts of the land and they will not harm you. So while they are deserving of judgment and wrath, while they deserve to have all of these curses rain down upon them, instead, Psalm 91 promises a restoration of amazing peace, comfort, and stability. And not just for a time, but in a sustained manner. Now, be honest here, and you don't need to answer this audibly, but answer it in your mind. When you look at those promises, don't they seem to a degree to be unrealistic? Doesn't it seem to be a little too good to be true? Freedom from deadly disease? Freedom from the terrors of the night? Victory over an army of 10,000? No evil whatsoever upon me? Doesn't it just seem beyond the realm of reality What are we to make of these promises when they seem to go unfulfilled? What about that soldier who took these words confidently upon his lips and then watched his fellow soldiers die horrific deaths? What are we to make of such promises when hardship continues in our own life? How are we to line up these promises of Psalm 91 with the reality of struggling throughout this earthly life? Well, these things are reconciled ultimately because of the fulfillment of the work of Christ. And so fourthly, we are safe in the shadow of the Lord because these promises are fulfilled in the perfect work of our Savior. Promises fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. Now notice that there is a level of conditional elements to these things. Look at verse 9. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, no evil will befall you. And so if evil is to remain at bay, it's because I have regularly, unwaveringly made the Lord my dwelling place. But I don't always do that. I don't always make the Lord my dwelling place. I don't always trust. At times, I look elsewhere for safety and security. Verse 14, the Lord speaks, saying, Because he holds fast to me in love... I will deliver him. I will protect him. And so deliverance and protection comes because I have held fast to him in love. But I don't always hold fast in my love toward him. I waver. I don't always call upon him. I don't always believe. These conditional aspects of the psalm point out our ongoing failures and weaknesses. But I have another Who has done all of these things perfectly in my place. One who has always made the Lord his dwelling place. One who has always held fast in love to his heavenly father. Where Israel failed, Christ succeeded. Where the blessings of covenant obedience are promised, those blessings are secured in Christ Jesus. And as our representative, he now offers to us the fullness of these covenant blessings. It's interesting that in Matthew chapter 4, these words from Psalm 91 are distorted by the evil one in his temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Even Satan looks at Psalm 91 and says, these promises are way too good to be true. There's no way that God knows what he's talking about. There's no way that you can trust his word. This isn't reality. Let's take this word and let's put it to the test to see if it's really true. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from the temple. Because it says right here, he will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Let's test God and see if he's trustworthy. Let's see if he will keep his promises to you. Jesus' reply is one of remarkable trust as he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. His word is trustworthy. I do not doubt. I am not going to test the one in whom I trust. His words to me are sufficient. And I will hold on to those words with love. Jesus' response to the evil one reflects this unwavering, infinite love that he shares with his heavenly father. Jesus believes Psalm 91. He knows that these promises are true. He completely fulfills Psalm 91. In fact, he is the one who in verse 13 tramples the serpent under his foot as he fulfills the law in its entirety. And taking the curse that we deserved upon Himself. And Jesus knows that these promises will be fulfilled in the perfect timing of the one in whom He trusts. And Jesus also knows that the full scope, the full extent of these promises will one day be fulfilled in the lives of God's people. Satan accuses God of not making good upon his promise to attend to the needs of the chosen one by sending his angelic host. But in fact, the angels do come and minister to Jesus at the end of those 40 days of temptation. And it's the Lord of glory who has authority over all that angelic host. You recall when Jesus is betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, an impetuous Peter. ...strikes the ear off of one of those coming to arrest Jesus. And Jesus replies, "...do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father... ...and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels?" A legion may be upward of around 6,000. And so we're talking about an incalculable number... ...all of which are available not only to Jesus Christ... ...but to His people as well. And if the promises of Psalm 91 are true... And if they are for you, then this same heavenly host is there to minister, to comfort, to protect, to do the will of the Lord in watching over you. Now there's no notion here or elsewhere in scripture of some individual guardian angel assigned to you. That might sound sweet, but that's far from reality. John Calvin says, he does not assign one solitary angel to each saint but commissions the whole armies of heaven to keep watch over every individual believer. The reality is this whole host of angelic beings will not fail in their charge to exalt the name of the eternal Son. They will not fail to do the will of the Lord on high to bring glory to his name. And one of the ways in which his name is glorified is that angelic host will come with the Son of Man at the end of the age on that final day... ...separating the evil ones from those righteous in Christ. Now oftentimes discouragement in the Christian life comes... ...because we long for the not yet to intrude into the already. We want the future promises to be evident in my life now. And we become impatient and we become restless... ...and perhaps we don't find our satisfaction in Him... Now verse 8 is right at the center of this psalm. Look there again. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Now at first this verse might seem to be a bit out of place. I mean, this is a psalm which is all about the glory and the power and the reign of God and the way in which he protects his people and they find rest in him. So why tell us that we will see with our own eyes the recompense That is the reward that is due the wicked. Because God's people may find themselves in exile, but a day of vindication is coming, and they will see it with their own eyes. Because Christ was handed over to wicked men and put upon the cursed cross, and yet His resurrection and ascension followed, and we will one day see Him coming again in judgment with our own eyes. Because the church may be in the wilderness, but this day is coming, a day of blessing for all eternity that we will behold with our own eyes in that sustained and everlasting manner. But how can we be certain? How can we be certain that this faith will one day be made sight? Well, because we have, as Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 1, we have a deposit. A guarantee of that heavenly inheritance, the Spirit of Christ who dwells within, bringing us comfort, taking these rich truths and making them a present reality. We are called to trust every day in the goodness and the care of our loving Heavenly Father. We are to rest in His arms, knowing that nothing can happen to us outside of His divine will. For it is the faithfulness of our Savior which ensures that we will experience the fullness of blessing that is captured in this psalm. And so if we are safe, if we are safe in the shadow of the Lord because of our faithful Savior, then how can our response be anything other than trust? Trust in the Lord, as we see in verse 2. Trusting in Him means confidence that you can call upon His name and He will answer. He never leaves. He never forsakes. He never fails us. We can have confidence in His protection and in His purposes. Now we confess our belief in God's providence. That His providence is good, and holy, and wise, and purposeful. But do we functionally live as though His providence is such? If we are safe in the shadow of the Lord because of our Savior, how can our response be anything other than love towards the Lord? We see it captured in verse 14. How can we not long to hold fast to Him in love? To long to love Him because He first loved us? Do you see His great love for you? A love made most evident in the sending of the eternal Son to die while you were yet a sinner. He is never far off, but always here with you. He knows your needs, and He will meet those needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus... He will do amazingly more than we could ever ask or imagine. His promises are remarkable. And if we are safe in the shadow of the Lord, of our Savior, how can our response be anything other than finding satisfaction in Him? Verse 16. You know, think of how many of our pursuits in life and how much of our longings in life are because of our quest for satisfaction. Yet all that you long for is met in Him. All that you need is provided in Him. All that your souls crave is satisfied in Him and in His salvation. And that wonder of salvation is given to us in the beauty of His Word. And His Word is to be the treasure of the Christian life. As we look to His Word, as we seek to find the satisfaction that He has offered to us in the pages of Scripture... We can, when we consider the eternal value of God's Word, I've heard it illustrated like this. Given a choice between a Bible with a $100 bill between every page and a Bible with none, and we had to read each page before we got that $100 bill, well, we would gravitate towards the one filled with the cash, wouldn't we? And we would devour those pages. And yet there is no functional difference because the treasure and the wealth and the delight is in the very words of God to his people. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God lasts forever. Do you long for his word of truth to bear fruit in your life? Do you see it as life itself? Do you see it as sufficient and true? Who is a people like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help, And the sword of your triumph. May the Lord be pleased to take the eternal truth of his word. And inscribe it upon the hearts of his people.